Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on April 29, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and this week I'll be interviewing Evans J.R. Revere by Skype. This is my first Skype interview for podcasts, so let's hope it goes well. And we will be talking today about the upcoming Kim Trump summit, President Trump and his North Korea policy, the real prospects for denuclearization, North Korean strategy, and of course, last Friday's inter-Korean summit. And you can download or subscribe to our podcast not only at iTunes, but also Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. My guest today, Evans J.R. Revere, is currently Senior Advisor with the Albright Stonebridge Group, providing strategic advice to clients with a specific focus on Korea, China, and Japan. He is also a non-resident Senior Fellow at Brookings. From 2007 to 2010, he served as President President and CEO of the Career Society in New York. And by the way, I highly recommend the Career Society's own podcast that they do. Before that, he was Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and Acting Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, as well as the Deputy Chief of Mission and Charge d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Seoul. In short, he's been working on Asia with a special focus on Korea for 49 years. Evans, can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Good to be with you this morning. Thank you for coming back. I must explain to listeners that this is the second time that I've interviewed you. The last time we did it in person here in the NK News uh, podcast studio, but we lost the audio due to a corrupted SD card. So thank you very much for being so generous with your time, Evans. Well, it's my pleasure, and I hope we can uh, duplicate the uh, absolute brilliance of our conversation the other day. I felt we saved all the problems of the world, and uh, if people would only listen to us, everything would go fine. Let's hope so. Well, let's see what happens. Exactly. All right, so just as background, where were you during the 2000 and 2007 inter-Korean summits? During the 2000 uh, summit, I was the director for Korean affairs at the uh, Department of State in Washington, literally just wrapping up my uh, two-year tenure as the office director for Korean affairs, mm-hmm. ready to go to Seoul and take over my new duties as the deputy chief of mission. And in 2007, I was uh, I was wrapping up a career at the State Department, uh, getting ready to retire and move over to the Korea Society as CEO. Well, what did you make of both of the summits, and why do you believe they ultimately didn't lead to uh, long-lasting peace and co-prosperity between the two Koreas? Well, there were certainly plenty of, of hopes and aspirations and, and good intentions, particularly on the on the South Korean side. Uh, I had lots of interactions with Korean government officials and scholars and experts who worked very, very hard on all of that. But I think at the end of the day, combination of continuing profound mistrust between the two sides with a healthy dose of insincerity on the uh, part of the North Koreans, I think uh, ultimately contributed to a failure of both of those summits to achieve the goals and aspirations uh, of the South Korean side, uh, despite all of the uh, the hard work and, and, and good efforts that went into them. And what did you make of last Friday's inter-Korean summit between President Moon Jae-in and Chairman Kim Jong-un? Well, I must say, uh, I, I watched uh, part of it on, on television and then reviewed uh, a lot of video footage and read everything uh, mm-hmm. in terms of reporting and commentary. And I have to give high marks to President Moon and uh, his government and his team at the Blue House and the rest of the Korean government for what they did in terms of organizing this event, in terms of the messaging, mm. uh, tremendous preparations, the pageantry, uh, and the impact of it all. Uh, I was... I was uh, quite impressed, and it was at least as impressive. Hmm. 
and in a certain sense, even more so than the previous two summits in terms of the way that this was carried out. Panmunjom is not the greatest place to have an international meeting for obvious reasons. Sure. It's a venue that is fraught with historical baggage and tension and uh, some horrific incidents that have happened over the years. And to be able to pull off an event like this just in and of itself was was quite impressive. Did you get but, the sense watching yeah, sure, the, the optics that uh, Kim Jong-un himself was uh, impressed or perhaps even overcome by, <laughs> as you say, the preparations, the pageantry, etc.? Well, I think he was impressed. I don't know that he was overcome by the pageantry uh, since uh, his side had as much to do with it uh, as did the South Korean side. I thought I sensed he carried himself. Uh, it's the way he walked down those steps uh, across the border, uh, invited President Moon to step onto the uh, onto the other side, and the way he carried himself throughout the meeting, that this was a man who was filled with self-confidence. One had a sense that he may have thought that he, as much as anyone else, was in the driver's seat, and that things were playing out very much according to a game plan that he had had a considerable hand in, uh, in putting together in recent months. That's interesting, because I, I talked to some people here in Seoul who, who watched the same summit, obviously, but they got quite the distinct impression that uh, Kim Jong-un seemed nervous and quite respectful, uh, or at least that, that Moon Jae-in looked like he was the one in control and dominant in hmm. terms of, uh, of body language. It was very interesting to get such... Well, I don't want to take anything away from President Moon. I mm. mean, he clearly uh, was, was in his element there, and uh, the beaming smile on his face and the yeah. way that he managed things was, was, was quite impressive. But uh, I would not underestimate the degree to which events played out in a, in a manner that was very much in keeping with Kim Jong-un's uh, own hopes and, and plans. How do you believe that last Friday's summit will affect a possible future meeting between Chairman Kim and President Donald Trump? Well, that's the question of the hour, isn't it? I, w I would have to separate the high marks that I've given for the organization and the messaging and the pageantry and all that from my assessment of the substance of this summit. Mm. And I think there's the rub. In terms of the substance, the, the joint declaration, I thought, was, it was an interesting and, and puzzling document. It was essentially a, a summary compilation of bilateral agreements that the North and South have put together some of them dating back to 1972. Right, the inter-Korean uh, communique, or the joint exactly. communique, sorry. Yes, and I was in Korea in 1972 when, when that happened, and I've seen many of these other communiques and agreements and understandings reached. And in many cases, the, the language of the joint declaration this time around was highly derivative in terms of its connection to previous statements that have been issued by the North and South after previous summits and, and exchanges. And... Uh, and going through the document, I see a lot of what I've described as, as recycled hopes and aspirations. Yeah. And I think it's really important to remember that uh, that many of those hopes that were raised by previous summits and exchanges between North and South were dashed over the years. And mm. many of the promises and commitments that were made in those documents and in those meetings were ultimately violated or just failed to be implemented. So I think we need to restrain ourselves in terms of our, uh, our hopes and our enthusiasm for where things are going. And that more than anything, I think, is something that uh, the United States side is going to have to keep closely in mind as yeah. they continue the planning for the summit 
between uh, President Trump and uh, and Kim Jong-un, and particularly on the issue of denuclearization. I, I saw that vague but intriguing uh, reference yes. uh, to complete denuclearization in the document this time around. There's very little in the way of, of specifics on what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and even whether it's going to happen. And that is going to be a big factor going forward in the U.S. DPRK summit. Well, yeah, actually, you make an interesting point. We're going to return to that. Uh, I'm going to start or move on to a piece that you wrote for Newsweek earlier this month, on, uh, published on April 4th, titled, Kim Jong-un will not give up North Korea's nuclear weapons. And in it, you say that Trump, uh, President Trump didn't understand or didn't know when he agreed to a summit what Kim Jong-un meant when he talked about the nuclearization of the North Korean Peninsula. Could you just briefly sketch for our listeners the uh, American and North Korean positions on what denuclearization means? Well, first of all, apologies for the title of that Newsweek piece. I'm not responsible for the title. I actually think there there could be a path to denuclearization, and we can talk about that if you'd like. In terms of uh, the North Korean definition of denuclearization, uh, over the years, many of us uh, who have dealt with the North Koreans at the negotiating table, whether it's in government or outside of government, have heard the North Koreans use this phrase, denuclearization of the entire Korean peninsula or the whole Korean peninsula. And when they have raised that uh, phrase in the past, We've questioned them as to what uh, it means, and they've told us it means the removal of the threat. Uh, And when they define the threat, they define the threat as consisting of the U.S. military presence on the Korean Peninsula, our troops, the existence of the U.S. ROK security treaty, and the existence of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Uh, that defends the Republic of Korea as well as Japan. And our North Korean colleagues have told us, uh, quite bluntly, that uh, if those three elements of the threat are removed, North Korea will feel more secure. And eventually, perhaps in 10 or 20 years, this is their words, Mm. North Korea might feel comfortable enough or secure enough to consider the possibility of denuclearization. That's their definition of the denuclearization process. And it's very different, of course, from that of the United States, uh, which continues to be a variation of the complete, verifiable and irreversible denuclearization, a phrase that's been uh, has come to be very familiar to all of us over the years. Right. The uh, so-called CVID. Precisely. Although we don't hear that phrase so much anymore these days. No, uh, it's it's uh, somewhat passed out of use. But if you press U.S. government officials, they will uh, they will continue to uh, to refer to it in conversations. Now, when was the last time a North Korean official relayed to you this position that you just sketched out, that of uh, removing the threat, i.e., remove sorry American troops from the Korean Peninsula? When was the last time you heard that? The last time I heard it at a very high level was about five or six years ago, but I've, I've heard it at, at reasonably senior levels, the director general or deputy director general level uh, as recently as, uh, as September of last year at a uh, track two dialogue that uh, I attended with DPRK representatives. Right. So you're still involved at the track two level in, in dialogues, aren't you? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, several times a year in, in various places, I, I get together with DPRK colleagues, some of which some of whom I've known for quite some time. Their position on denuclearization, I don't think has changed, at least not in any of the rhetoric I've heard. Mm -hmm. And their determination to remain a de facto nuclear weapon state is something that has come across extremely clearly and sometimes very dramatically in some of the rhetoric that I've heard uh, from them. Right. Now, uh, the statement that they signed, and you you, uh, referred to this phrase there, uh, the phrase is the common goal of realizing through complete denuclearization a nuclear-free Korean peninsula. 
This is uh, from last Friday's joint statement. Yeah, the the phrase sounds very familiar to me. It it seems to be quite similar to phrases that we've heard the North Koreans use in the past. It has that reference to the Korean Peninsula. Mm. And whenever I hear a North Korean reference to the denuclearization of uh, the Korean Peninsula, I'm reminded of the fact that it's been many years since the United States removed all of its nuclear weapons uh, from the Korean Peninsula. So what are we talking about when we talk about denuclearization of the entire peninsula when the only nuclear weapons that exist on the peninsula are in the north? That's a question that we ought to ask ourselves. Yeah, actually, just as background, what in what year was the last uh, U.S. nuclear weapon removed from the Korean peninsula, from the southern half of the Korean Peninsula? The decision by uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush, I think that was 1991 or 1992. Mm-hmm. And it was not just uh, uh, Korea, but it was the removal of our uh, uh, tactical nuclear weapons from a whole range of bases and facilities overseas as part of a, ah. a broad revision of U.S. nuclear policy. That, of course, uh, happened almost simultaneously with the North-South uh, denuclearization accords that were negotiated and concluded in 1991, 92. And by the way, uh, that joint statement included a specific North Korean commitment not to develop enrichment, uh, uranium enrichment facilities for the production of fissile material, a pledge that they uh, clearly violated over the years since they have at least one and perhaps more such facilities today. Now, as far as you know, what's South Korea's position on denuclearization? Well, my understanding is that the South Korean position is uh, virtually identical to uh, to that of the United States. Mm-hmm. But I did, did note uh, a week or so ago, uh, President Moon uh, uh, said something quite what I found quite curious. And he said that the North Korean and South Korean positions on denuclearization were the same. And, ah. and I thought that rather puzzling. Yeah. And I'm still trying to get my head around exactly uh, what he meant by that. Now, you wrote in your uh, Newsweek piece that, uh, quote, veterans of U.S. nuclear talks with Pyongyang have been troubled by President Trump's eagerness to talk to Kim Jong-un. Are you also troubled? Yes. uh, Not so much uh, about... the principle of talking to the North Koreans. I've always been a strong advocate of engagement with North Korea, Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been advocating uh, the idea of high-level engagement with the North Koreans, including uh, at the cabinet or presidential representative uh, level. I've been advocating that for a number of years. But what's troubled me about this presidential decision to meet with Kim Jong-un is the way it was prepared or not prepared, as the case may be, uh, the spontaneity of it, uh, the fact that it was done without uh, recourse to consultations with senior officials in the U.S. government, the fact that it was just decided so suddenly and without any of the appropriate consideration and preparations that you would normally expect in advance of such a momentous decision. And of course, this is a meeting that would have profound consequences, not only for the United States, but for the Republic of Korea itself. And for an American president to decide almost literally on the spur of the moment Mm. uh, to go ahead with this meeting without appropriate consultation or at that point without appropriate preparations, I thought was puzzling, potentially uh, risky or even dangerous. I guess the good news is that there have now been some additional uh, preparations and uh, Secretary Pompeo has had a visit to Pyongyang and yeah. there may have been some other contacts and that's a good thing. But uh, it just seems that the entire way that this decision has been made and the entire way this summit is being managed is uh, is somewhat backwards in terms mm. of the way we normally would proceed as, as diplomats in putting something like this together. Could you perhaps sketch, uh, well, tell us how you think... North Korea could be induced to giving up its nuclear weapons. 
I've been a participant in talks with the North Koreans since roughly the, the mid-1990s. And in those talks, we have tried uh, inducements, uh, promises, assurances, security uh, guarantees. We have tried taking sanctions off. Uh, we have tried removing North Korea from the list of state sponsors of terrorism. We have tried uh, promises of normalization. I was supposed to be the first U.S. representative to open up a liaison office in Pyongyang. Wow. We've economic assistance. We've tried energy assistance. And so we've tried to be a good cop. Uh, but over the years, uh, for example, during the Bush administration and during the Obama administration, we've tried being bad cop as well. What we've discovered is that none of that has worked. And so the argument that I've been making since early in the Obama administration is that North Korea's goal in developing nuclear weapons is to enhance and guarantee the security and the longevity of the North Korean regime, the way to convince them to go down a different path of mm -hmm. denuclearization is to convince them that they're, the very fact that they are developing nuclear weapons is undermining the stability of their regime. And the way to do that is by the application of comprehensive, overwhelming, unprecedented sanctions and other measures that take place in the areas of diplomatic uh, relations, banking, financial, economic and trade sanctions, human rights sanctions, military pressures, uh, covert steps that we can take, a whole range of things that would send a message to the North Korean leadership that it is their very development of nuclear weapons that has the potential to undermine the stability of the regime. And I have long believed that the North Koreans and the North Korean leader, that they are all rational actors and that in response to that stark reality, they will make the right decision to go down a uh, more cooperative path. Uh, last week, I was talking to uh, the director of a humanitarian organization that works with uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis in uh, in North Korea, and he explained the uh, the difficulties in uh, bringing not only the the drugs but also, for example, treatment wards for patients into North Korea because they're apparently. Uh, in violation of sanctions. Now, uh, getting a, an exemption for these things is so difficult that it makes me wonder, is there a, a possible humanitarian cost to uh, the kind of program of multilateral sanctions that, that you're talking about? One certainly doesn't want to punish the North Korean people who have suffered entirely too much over the decades from what this regime has done uh, to them. During the Clinton administration and the Bush administration, I was a strong advocate of food assistance and medical and, and other types of assistance to the North Korean people. There are mechanisms uh, to obtain exemptions from some of the sanctions and other measures that are being put in place. And most of those sanctions and other measures are directed against the regime itself and the elite and the military and funds that go to underwrite the militarization of North Korea and its development of nuclear weapons and missiles. I, so I think there is room for us to retain support or allow space for humanitarian operations to continue to go forward, at the same time putting pressure on the regime and on the elites itself. I think we can still do that. I think there's a mechanism to do that. Uh, you believe that China and North Korea have a common goal, and that is namely to break up the U.S.-Korean military alliance. Why is this important for China? Well, I think uh, that's certainly North Korea's goal. Uh, if you look at their rhetoric over the decades, it's very clear that uh, one of their aims is to not only drive a wedge between Seoul and Washington, but to see what could be done to dismantle the alliance if possible and to weaken the alliance. The Chinese may not be an active participant in that effort, but the Chinese, I think, stand to benefit from it. 
the removal of uh, U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula, the removal of U.S. assets, strike assets from uh, on or around the Korean Peninsula would work to China's advantage to the extent that uh, there is a diminished U.S. military presence in Northeast Asia, particularly in Korea, works to China's advantage. And so to that extent, I think China and North Korea have a shared interest in this outcome that North Korea is pursuing. Do you see any signs that China has any strategic goals beyond that? China's goals are the maintenance of stability in Northeast Asia, the prevention of the precipitate collapse of North Korea, which would, of course, cause chaos and possibly war on China's border. I think China continues to have an interest in propping up the North Korean regime as distasteful as some of North Korea's behavior may be hmm. uh, for China, including its development of nuclear weapons and the fact that North Korea continues to support policies, continues to take actions that could destabilize the Korean Peninsula. Chinese continue to believe that it is better to have North Korea as a neighbor than to risk the uncertainty that would come from the reunification of the Korean Peninsula, uh, particularly a reunification that would result in a powerful, probably U.S.-allied uh, Republic of Korea. Do you see any signs that China fears possible adventurism or subversive activities by North Korea against South Korea or even vice versa if the U.S.-Korea alliance were dissolved and American troops were to leave the peninsula? Some of my Chinese colleagues that I talk to about uh, these things uh, have those fears. It's hard for me to know or say to what extent those fears are shared uh, by the leadership in Beijing, uh, but certainly a, a range of scholars, Chinese scholars and experts that I talk to uh, are concerned not only about North Korea's ongoing development of nuclear weapons and missiles, but uh, North Korea's penchant for, uh, for mischief, if you will, in mm. Northeast Asia. That sort of mischief could lead directly to what I often define as China's nightmare, which is chaos on the Korean Peninsula. And mm. for that reason alone, uh, there are many Chinese who are concerned about uh, North Korean behavior. Uh, coming back now to the upcoming uh, Trump and Kim summit, do you believe that Tre President Trump now fully understands Kim Jong-un's goals? hope so. Uh, if uh, Mr. Pompeo, Secretary, now Secretary Pompeo, did his job during his discussions in Pyongyang and his meeting with Kim Jong-un, he did have an opportunity to look uh, Kim Jong-un in the eye and ask the tough questions. And uh, anyone who's worked on North Korea over the years could easily put together half a dozen questions that needed to be asked. And I certainly hope that he did ask those questions. Uh, only he knows if he did. Uh, well, I guess the president by now has been briefed on it of course. I suspect that by now there's a pretty good understanding in Washington of uh, what Kim Jong-un wants and what he is prepared to give. And uh, that uh, is being uh, filtered through the U.S. system, being considered by all of the parties that are helping the president prepare. And so I think by now, President Trump does have that understanding. Uh, you uh, said in your Newsweek piece that Trump's new security team, led by the human mustache John Bolton, might try to convince him to cancel or delay the summit. Uh, is that what you would advise if you were in his place? I continue to think that it's uh, it's better not to move too quickly into the summit uh, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. It will take a long time to put together an appropriate strategy that would deal with the, the new reality that we're facing. I, I continue to think that uh, it's probably best to go slowly. And uh, towards that end, I would strongly advocate and have advocated that uh, high-level contacts with the North Koreans should continue for some period of time until we have a reasonable degree of clarity about uh, what 
a USDPRK summit is likely to produce. Uh, keep in mind mm. that one of the fundamental rules of summitry is that both parties need to have a pretty similar vision of what the summit is going to produce, if not an identical vision of what the summit is going to produce uh, before you actually agree to have the summit. And I don't think we have that situation right now. I think that the United States of the DPRK are still a considerable distance apart mm. on what each side wants. And until we narrow that gap and until we ideally eliminate that gap, I would advocate ongoing contacts, ongoing discussions and negotiations uh, aimed at, at clarifying our differences, narrowing our differences uh, and eliminating our differences. And at that point, that's the point at which leaders should engage. And that's the point that I've been making to colleagues in the government. At, at this stage of the game, what percentage probability do you give to the summit actually going ahead? Well, I think it's a, it's a lot more likely to go ahead than than it isn't. Uh, and so uh, with that in mind, my advice to my colleagues in Washington, uh, the advice that I've been sharing with them is keep in mind the various traps and problems and pitfalls and dead ends that could result from a USDPRK summit. And as you keep those in mind, figure out ways to avoid them, mm. uh, figure out ways to make sure that we have a strategy in place to deal with a North Korean leader who is a skilled negotiator, who is a master tactician and who, in my view, in the view of many other North Korea experts that I know, is determined to retain his nuclear weapons capability because that is almost certainly what he wants to do. Now, what, uh, do you make anything of the decision by the Warmbier family to lodge a, a lawsuit against uh, the North Korean government for the death of their son, Otto Warmbier, last year. Uh, is there anything to be seen in, in the timing of that? Well, in terms of the timing, I think happening on the uh, in the run-up uh, to the North-South Summit and as we're looking towards a USDPRK summit, it's a pretty stark reminder by the Warmbier family, who are good friends of mine. I've been uh, helping them since their son was, was first uh, taken into custody in North Korea. But it's a reminder to the international community and to the participants in the summit that there are some serious additional issues that need to be talked about at any of these summits uh, yeah. that include uh, human rights, the treatment of individuals by the North Korean regime, and the horrific things uh, in this instance that happened to their son, who was in the minds of the Warmbier family, uh, tortured by the North Koreans. And I think there's a, there are good reasons to believe that that actually happened. And so this is a way uh, that the family, I think, has sought to remind everyone, mm -hmm. uh, including President Trump, yeah. uh, that the North Koreans have a lot to answer for. Now, you you paint a, a grim dichotomy of possible outcomes if President Trump does go ahead and meet with Kim Jong-un. They are, one, either agreeing to a long negotiating process that will play into Kim's hands, or two, walk away from the table, admit failure, and look at other options, including the use of military force. Uh, so firstly, why do you believe that a long negotiating process will play into Kim's hands? A long negotiating process or a long process of implementation of an agreement leaves the North Korean nuclear threat not only against the United States in place, but against our allies, the Republic of Korea and uh, Japan, uh, and also a nuclear threat that exists that could uh, uh, destabilize Northeast Asia. And so it would basically take the situation that we're in right now and leave it in place for some time to come. I don't think that's a very positive thing, particularly since we're dealing with a DPRK leadership that has threatened 
to use nuclear weapons. Uh, despite all the positive developments we've seen in recent days, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's worth being reminded that the North Korean regime has actually, it's the only regime on earth that has threatened to use nuclear weapons uh, against its neighbors and against others. And so for that reason, I think uh, the shorter the negotiation uh, and the clearer the goals are and the clearer the steps that North Korea takes to actually denuclearize, the better off we will all be. Uh, At the same time, uh, the Trump administration has said that it is not prepared to go down the path that previous U.S. administrations have gone down. Mm. And in in every single negotiation, uh, the 194 uh, negotiations, 98 through 2000, uh, 2003, 2005, what we've seen is the North Koreans taking advantage of elaborate and intricate negotiations to provide cover for their continued development of nuclear weapons. And so if there is this concern about going down that path again, one of the ways to avoid it is not to allow these negotiations to go on for an interminable period of time. Well, turning now to military options, what possible military options are there against North Korea other than all-out war? Uh, do you believe in the uh, the so-called bloody nose uh, hypothesis? The notion that one could carry out a military strike against North Korea and be reasonably assured that North Korea would not respond in kind, I think, is foolish in the extreme. Mm. Uh, I and and many others, including my colleague and Victor Cha and others, have been opposed to this idea. I think it would be uh, horrific uh, to go down that path. There are no serious military options that do not result in the prospect of a renewed peninsular war. It's that simple. Mm. Military options would be horrific, uh, would cause horrific casualties. Just victims of going down that path would be the Korean people themselves, including the citizens of Seoul. I have family members uh, living in Korea. I I don't want to see them negatively affected. I have hundreds and hundreds of friends and colleagues, both in and outside of government, uh, the U.S. government, Korean government, and others. This is is not a path that you want to see uh, any country go down. So uh, the only military scenario that I would support would be the defense of the Republic of Korea and or our Japanese allies against a North Korean attack. Other than that, there's no reason to go down that path. Have you uh, told any friends or family living in South Korea to consider perhaps traveling abroad? There were moments uh, back in uh, the towards the end of last year when I was seriously concerned about the direction of things on the peninsula. Mm. Uh, this was, of course, that period when people were talking about bloody nose strikes and yeah. possible military confirmation, confrontation. I was extremely nervous at that point, and uh, I was telling people to think twice uh, before traveling uh, to Korea. We're now in a better place, obviously. Uh, We're talking in diplomatic channels. There are discussions about uh, resolving problems as opposed to try to solve them through military means. And so that is a good thing. The fact that we're not talking every day about the possibility of of some horrific military action, uh, I think, suggests that we are in a better place. But that doesn't mean that we need to let our guard down. Right. Well, you do know my email address, just in case you want to send out any more warnings in future. Uh, As soon as I get something from your biotechnology. Korea, as you do, I, I'm there about once a month, and so uh, I have my own reasons to uh, to want to avoid military confrontation. Now, in January, the uh, Brookings Institution released a 28-page report that you wrote entitled "Endgame: A Reflection on U.S. Strategic Choices and the North Korean Threat," in which you look at the different options that the United States has in dealing with the North Korean nuclear problem. In it, you perhaps suggested, at least at that time in January, that the U.S. and the DPRK were on a on a collision course. Do you still think it's possible that uh, we might go back to that situation in the next one or two years? 
I, I can't rule that out, uh, but I am hopeful that yeah. uh, the fact that we are engaged uh, not only in north-south discussions, but USDPRK discussions will lead to uh, the possibility of a peaceful resolution of our, of our differences and a peaceful resolution of the, the DPRK nuclear issue. So I'm, I'm a lot more hopeful now than I was then. But I thought it was important in that paper to point out there are fewer and fewer options to resolving the situation with North Korea. And the, one of the options that was being looked at very intensively by Washington at that point was the military option. And I thought it important to spell out what the implications of pursuing that option were. Right. And I think we need to keep that in the back of our minds going forward. And one of the other options you discussed in the paper is accepting that North Korea is a de facto nuclear state and seeking to manage that threat rather than ending or eliminating it. And you mentioned that this idea has some support among senior leaders, but not notably by John Bolton. So why is this idea so unacceptable when the U.S. has tacitly come to accept that both India and Pakistan are de facto nuclear states, something that it once said was simply unacceptable? Well, the fact that the North Korean leader has on a number of occasions threatened to use nuclear weapons against the United States and against his neighbors, to me, that is a pretty fundamental concern. And it underscores the essential nature of pursuing denuclearization of, of North Korea. This is a country, unlike any other country, that has broken out of its treaty commitments. It has expelled uh, International Atomic Energy Agency uh, monitors. Mm. Uh, it has broken its agreements with the international community. It has surreptitiously developed weapons of mass destruction, and in some cases actually used them, uh, poison gas, etc. This is a country that time and again has proven to us that it should not be and cannot be be trusted. And uh, having nuclear weapons in the hands of a regime like that is not something that I think we should tolerate. Uh, I think there should be a the highest possible priority placed on eliminating the North Korean nuclear weapons program. And I hope that that is the path that we are now on. As far as you can make out, what is Kim Jong-un's actual uh, long-term strategy? What does he really want apart from survival for him and his family? The North Korean leader has decided that uh, the survival of his regime depends on the existence of his nuclear weapons program, and he has already developed usable nuclear weapons and deliverable nuclear weapons, so he has checked that box. The second goal of the North Korean leader, and he has actually said that in, in statements, including uh, earlier this year, is to begin to gain acceptance of North Korea as a de facto nuclear weapon state. And to the extent that he's able to do that, he will be able to change the diplomatic political military and security balance in Northeast Asia. The ultimate goal of the North Korean leader, and I'm convinced of this, mm. is to, to, to parlay or translate uh, his nuclear weapon status uh, into his ability to influence things on and around the Korean Peninsula to such a degree that he can actually look forward to possible reunification of the Korean Peninsula on his terms. And I'm not suggesting he would actually use nuclear weapons uh, on South Korea, but the fact that he is a nuclear, that he is in charge of a nuclear armed country mm. and South Korea does not have nuclear weapons, after driving a wedge between South Korea and, and Washington, the North Korean leader would try to find a way to eliminate or downgrade or weaken the USROK alliance. And that would put him in a better position to seek the ultimate goal of reunification of the Korean Peninsula on his terms. But wouldn't uh, unification, even on his terms, be more of a threat to him uh, and his regime stability than to South Korea? I mean, surely any kind of meaningful interaction between the North Korean and South Korean populaces will only uh, serve to uh, to degrade you know, the belief in North Koreans in their ideology. If we 
we've learned nothing about North Korea over the decades, uh, and if we've learned nothing about uh, authoritarian and totalitarian uh, regimes over the decades, we do understand uh, that they have uh, an amazing ability to take advantage of the openness and, in their view, the weakness of, uh, of democratic societies if the peninsula were to be reunified under North Korea, I think they would in pretty short order be able uh, to put any sort of opposition, uh, democratic opposition, popular opposition to them, uh, put that out of business uh, uh, pretty darn quickly. Authoritarian regimes and the, the world has never seen one as efficient and as brutal as that in the North today. These regimes are, are masterful when it comes to gaining power and once they are in power, using that power to intimidate coerce and maintain the the most centralized and firm uh, and brutal sort of control over society at large. We've heard a lot in the media in the last year or so that the uh, State Department has been quote-unquote hollowed out, that the uh, level of expertise there and just uh, even the day-to-day working level is, is not quite what it was perhaps when you were there, uh, you know, uh, 11 years ago. Are you getting any sign of that? And uh, does that look like a danger? There were some very solid people, very capable people uh, at that state and at our missions overseas. But one of the problems is that since it has been so long since we've been at the table with the North Koreans, it's been many years since we've had the sort of intense negotiations with the North Koreans that I and others participated in uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. A lot of the people who have that experience at the table, uh, particularly at senior levels, have moved on or have retired. Mm. And so you've got a, uh, a somewhat more junior cadre of people moving up the ranks now, extremely capable, and who did participate in some of these meetings at a more junior level, and they're there, uh, mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. But I think more more attention needs to be paid to the need to maintain uh, a high level of sophistication and capability, and perhaps one way of doing that would be to bring some of the experienced people back on board for a year or two uh, at a time as we go through this, uh, this period in the next few months. Are you, uh, would you yourself be willing to do that? Uh, not interested. I'm uh, delightfully retired these days. <laughs> uh, has a new ambassador to South Korea been nominated yet? The nomination of Admiral Harris to be ambassador to Australia was withdrawn. Mm. And the plan was to get his nomination made, uh, put forward to uh, to the Congress immediately after that. I don't know if the formal paperwork has gone forward, but that's certainly the intention. And he is obviously an experienced person when it comes to Asia matters and Korea matters. I think it would be a, uh, a, a very solid and capable uh, and distinguished ambassador in Seoul. And I look forward to his, uh, his arriving on the scene. Uh, do you have any final words of wisdom or ideas to share with us today? As I said at the outset of our conversation, uh, I've been extremely pressed, impressed by what just happened at Panmunjom. My compliments to the Blue House and to President Moon. And now that we're moving from the stage of assessing the optics of what just happened and the pageantry of what happened to the substance of what happened, we will need to be very careful going forward and remember some of our uh, hard-earned, uh, hard-learned uh, lessons of the past, including the fact that uh, time and again, what we've discovered over the years is the level to which and the extent to which North Korea is determined to retain its nuclear weapons capability. And so far, uh, despite all the hopes and aspirations that have been inspired by the summit, I have not seen any clear indication that North Korea intends to give up that determination to retain some level of nuclear weapons capability. And we need to keep that clearly in mind going forward and continue to press 
uh, continue to push and continue to keep the, the pressure on North Korea and to continue to stay in lockstep as much as possible between not only Washington and uh, Seoul, but uh, Tokyo and, and the other players and the other actors to ensure that we can work together to keep the heat on Pyongyang. Well, that sounds like sensible advice. Thank you very much to Evans Revere uh, for being our Skype guest today. And thank you once again for uh, your patience, especially for having to restart some sentences. We apologize to listeners for any uh, audio problems or sound dropouts that were caused by gremlins in the Internet. And don't forget that you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>